Hi, I'm Deb. This is Frankie V. I'm Grant. Hi, this is Phil. I'm Aaron. I'm Stephen. Hi, I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Matt. We're Tim and Terry. I'm Susan. Hi, this is Phil. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. Seminary Dropout is supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. It's easy. Just visit supportseminarydropout.com. Just go to supportseminarydropout.com. And I'm your host, Shane Blackshear. Interviews with leading Christian authors, leaders, and thinkers. Let's go. Well, my guest today is Dr. N.T. Wright, the former Bishop of Durham and Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford University. Dr. Wright, welcome back. I confess, I, I struggle with giving you an introduction. One, because uh, most people know who you are, and your your biography or you know your bylines are, are quite long. Uh, and it always, it always brings me back to uh, several years back at the Missio Alliance conference when uh, it, it, AJ Swoboda introduced you, and I, I've never uh, an introduction has never stuck with me. He told this beautiful, very personal story about what a book meant for you, meant to him, and uh, I just thought, well, it, that's just never going to be topped. But regardless, welcome back. Thanks so much for being with me today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Well, the new book is uh, Into the Heart of Romans, a deep dive into Paul's greatest letter. This is, people may not realize by the title, this is all about one chapter in Romans. What is it about Romans 8 that made you want to write an entire book on it? Well, some years ago, I had to think about what to do in the teaching that I was doing at Wycliffe Hall for the seminary students, and uh, I said to them, because often I've done Bible expositions which go right through a book, maybe two chapters at a time or something like that, and I said, it'd be rather fun to take something which we could actually work through word by word and let them see the, you know, it's like taking your car apart and and laying out all the bits and, and making sure they're all clean and then putting them back together and hearing the engine roar. And I said, well, if I was going to do that, the obvious chapter is Romans 8, um, because it is such a such a big, sprawling chapter, contains so many extraordinary things and key aspects of theology, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, atonement, justification, resurrection, suffering, prayer, um, etc., 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 but also because it occurs right in the middle of Romans. You know, Romans has four uh, what I call movements, like a symphony, one to four, five to eight, nine to 11, 12 to 16, so that chapter eight, at the end of the second movement, comes, as it were, at the very center point um, of the letter, because nine to 11 is dense, but a bit shorter, and then 12 to 16 is about the same length, but um, a bit more discursive. So eight is really where everything is held together. And if you can get that right, in a sense, you ought to be able to work out in both directions um, and see how it all plays from there. So it, But also, I think for many people, if you ask them, uh, what one chapter in the Bible would you take with you to a desert island? I think there's many people who would say, actually, Romans 8, um, up there along with John 20 or Psalm 23 or whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, when I was realizing that this book was all about chapter 8, I, I thought, okay, hold on, I've got to go back and read chapter 8 of Romans. And I, I, it occurred to me, this is a dense chapter, very robust, and there's a lot packed into this chapter. Oh, yeah. That's, that's right. I mean, Paul um, often writes densely, but um, uh, it, it, this is as dense as anything he writes almost. I think maybe five, chapter 5, verses 12 to 21 is even denser. He writes sentences without subjects and main verbs and so on. He's just splashing words down on the page. 
but uh, in chapter eight, um, there's 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 no there's no nothing spare about it. Every argument is tight, and he's sort of turned the screw one extra notch. So chump chump chump, here it is, and it builds up and builds up, and it's got a, a got a beauty about it. I mean, the structure of the whole chapter, with the first eleven verses, and then um, you know the, the last the last nine verses. Um, forming the outer um, edges, and then verses twelve to thirty as this centerpiece, um, which is, and this is really one of the most important things to say about it. It's all about vocation. It's, the chapter is not about salvation. Uh, it's not saying here's how you can be sure you're going to heaven. That's not the topic. Um, and indeed, the word heaven only occurs twice in Romans, and in neither case does it refer to the place where God's people go after they die. A lot of people are surprised by that, but um, verses 12 to 30 are the heart of the chapter, and it's all about the Christians calling to be Jesus people, messianic people, suffering people, prayerful people, in order that God's purpose for the larger creation may come about. But uh, yeah, you're, you're probably going to ask me about that anyway, so I'll let you come back. <laughs> well, no, I'm glad you said that because there are a lot of words that Paul uses in this chapter that for, I think for us modern readers, signals to us things of the afterlife. For instance, the very first verse, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. A lot of us read that as saying that, that there's there's no hell for those who are in yeah, Christ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then also the word glory. Paul like really likes to use the word glory and being glorified. And a lot of People will take that to mean, uh, you know, some kind of existence in heaven someday. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. and, and that's that's clearly not the case. Yeah, yeah. So, condom. So, let's go back to condemnation. Uh, this is not talking about not going to hell in the afterlife. What does Paul have in view there in that first verse? Well, the beginning of chapter eight hooks into all sorts of bits earlier in the letter, including not least chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, which is about final judgment. I mean, it's not that there isn't a doctrine of final judgment. There certainly is, and 2, 1 to 16 is where it is. Um, but then from there, Paul moves into the gospel mode at the end of chapter 3, and he says that the verdict of the last day is already known for those who belong to the Messiah Jesus um, because of what God has done in and through him as a result of which you are already members of the family of Abraham, chapter 4. And then he stands back and has this whole sweep in chapters 5 through 8, which, to be sure, is about God ultimately looking after his people and neither death nor life nor anything in all creation can separate us from his love. But um, the way we have read the whole New Testament in terms of heaven and hell simply isn't what the whole New Testament is about. I mean, this, this we have to track back yet one more step from here. And uh, the book that I'm now trying to write, having got this got this one off my desk, is is being quite blunt about it. That most Christians in the Western world, and indeed most non-Christians, think that the point of Christianity is for your soul to go to heaven when you die, and that really, really, really isn't. The point of Christianity is that God wants to come and dwell with His human creatures um, 
in the renewed earth and that what Jesus has done is to open up the way to that so that it's already started to happen and Jesus' resurrection launches that new creation. So this isn't about how do we get upstairs to God, it's about how does God come to be with and live with and in and through us. And obviously the, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is really important there as in this chapter. So it isn't that saying there is no condemnation has nothing whatever to do with final judgment um, because ultimately it looks back to chapter 2 and assures of that. But the assurance of Romans chapter 8 is is really very much a present thing. Paul is writing to a church that is both uh, a tiny minority in a big pagan city, the city of Rome, and maybe a few hundred Christians at the most um, in a city of maybe a million, um, and that they are already unpopular because people know that they do strange things. They meet for worship as Jews and Gentiles together as men and women together, as slaves and free together. These people are obviously socially subversive. We're very suspicious of them. And so pretty soon after the writing of this letter, the Christians are targeted for persecution. And it's a way of saying, look, whatever happens, God is with you. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's the no condemnation. It's not just the ultimate condemnation. It's whatever Nero may say, whatever some local magistrate may say, that's irrelevant because what matters is that God is for you and therefore who can be against you? A few noises here and there, but they're irrelevant. That's the real emphasis then. And so then the glorification thing, um, that's one of the real surprises I know in this chapter, that so many people, including myself in the two commentaries that I've written on Romans 20 years ago, um, assume that glorification means going to heaven in some way, shape or form. But actually glory and glorification is where two things come together. One is that in the Old Testament and the Jewish world, the hope of glory is the hope that the divine glory, which abandoned the temple at the time of the exile, compare Ezekiel, that the divine glory will come back and dwell with God's people. And you see that in Paul's whole understanding of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the glorious presence of God. Paul argues that out in 2 Corinthians 3 and elsewhere, and he's drawing on that in this passage. But the other thing about glory is going back to Psalm 8, which is really important. It's about the human glory, which he has already alluded to. And Psalm 8 is saying, what are humans? You made them little lower than the angels in order to crown them with glory and honor, putting all things in subjection under their feet. In other words, the glory is the human delegated sovereignty over the world. God wants his world to be wisely ordered through human beings. And one of the ways of describing that is God endowing them with his authority, his glory, his splendor. And what does that look like in the present age? Paradoxically, it looks like what it looked like when Jesus was glorified in the completion of his mission, which was as John makes clear, he was glorified on the cross. So the glory comes in the present time in the midst of suffering and the prayer of lament, which comes at the heart of that suffering in verses 26 and 27. So that the glory is not, uh, there we are, we'll get through this present mess and then there's glory to come. The glory is the taking up of the human vocation, the genuine human responsibility in the present time, being under God and over the world. It's why Paul says in verse 29 that you might be conformed to the image of the Son, 
that the image is Jesus as the genuine human reflecting God into the world and reflecting the praises and laments of the world back to God. So that's, that's why it's all about vocation. Um, that it's all about being called to be genuine humans, which is to be the bearers of God's glory. And that's where the glory, which is the, the presence of the Spirit, is with us in order to assure us that this glory is not some strange fiction that we've dreamt up. It's the reality. Sorry, it's a long answer, but it was a great question. No, and I, and I was thinking as you were answering, I think we'd want you to say that the glory was embodied in Jesus's new body after the resurrection, and I'm sure it was in a way, but you're saying it's actually embodied on the cross, on the suffering of the cross. It's very clear uh, that the cross is not something that Jesus does despite the fact that he is the living embodiment of the one true God. Um, the cross is something he does because he is the living embodiment of the one true God. And really, here as elsewhere in Paul, think of Philippians 2, Paul's picture of Jesus is actually this astonishing picture of God. Instead of what Western theologians have done so often, which is to have a, a big classical picture of God who is omnipotent and omnicompetent and omnipresent and omni-everything else, and then you have that picture of God, then you try to fit Jesus into that picture, and that's difficult because this is the Jesus who wept at the tomb of his friend and who said, my God, why did you abandon me? And who uh, sweated drops of blood in Gethsemane. Um, it's very hard to fit that with the classical model of God. And the New Testament doesn't tell you to do it that way. The New Testament says with John, no one has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is in the Father's bosom, he has expounded him. He's made him known. And Paul himself says in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, don't think you can see God first and then fit Jesus in. You've got to look hard at Jesus, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John makes it very clear when Jesus is lifted up, that's when he is being glorified. He has revealed his glory, and that's supremely on the cross. And then the resurrection, of course, retrospectively tells you that that's what's going on. But it isn't that the resurrection is the moment of glory after the moment of non-glory. The resurrection opens your eyes so that you can recognize the crucifixion as the victory of the Messiah over the powers of evil. One of the big, I kind of felt like that one of the big elephants in the room of this book was that we are people who are post-Reformation people who have been given this narrative that uh, the law is bad, and but Jesus is good and came to abolish the law which is kind of the opposite of what what Paul says. <laughs> but but that but this uh chapter 8 is you know full of law talk, right? Yeah. Well, up to verse 8 because it joins on with Romans 7 and indeed I could have written uh, a book, I guess, about Romans 7, 1 through to 8, 11, because that is a coherent train of thought. But they, they overlap because, of course, the train of thought has a big switch at chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation, etc. But he is still talking about the law. And you're right that what he says about the law in 8, 1 following is very positive because the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
it's all comprehensible once you abandon the model that you just articulated, which is basically the old kind of low-grade Lutheran model. Now, serious Lutherans, I think, wouldn't say it like that, but that's certainly what a lot of us grew up with, that you have the law which is telling you to do good things and then God will like you, and then Jesus comes along or Paul comes along and says, no, 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 that's not the way. That just leads to pride. Forget the law um, as, a, as a better way. Uh, as though God has sort of changed his mind in midstream, having given the Torah. And that's actually a very dangerous and damaging approach, which the whole thing that some people have called the new perspective on Paul has done its best to dethrone. But it's still very firmly in the popular consciousness of many, many Christians on both sides of the Atlantic. And the answer is no. The law is God's holy law, and the law focuses on the covenant. And the covenant says... Here's your choice. Do this and you will die. Do this and you will live. And so when then Jesus and the Spirit do what they do, they are coming in on the track of the good intention of the law. Paul describes it in chapter 7 verse 10 as the commandment which was unto life proved to be death to me. But the commandment which was unto life still goes on. And when Jesus and the Spirit do what they do, it's as though the law is looking on and saying, phew, at last, that's what I was really aiming at. I was aiming to give life to God's people. Um, and, and now through Christ and the Spirit, it, it's happened. So somehow we really have to shuffle off that old antithetical view of the law being bad and the gospel being good. The gospel says that God's purposes in the law have been fulfilled. And it gets a bit more complicated than the simplistic views have allowed for. I think that one thing that helped me in my thinking about that is I think that even when I thought about the laws being good, I think of I think I thought of it as uh, the, the same way as a child thinks about eating their broccoli, which you know this is good for me, but if so if I hold my nose and choke it down, then th this will be good for me in the long run. But I mean, for instance, you know the psalmist is constantly talking about how. It's a delight a absolutely. to follow the law. Absolutely. And Paul is clearly picking that up in Romans 7 and saying, I delight in the law according to my inward being. And I think one of the things which I really got closer to when I was writing this book was the way in which in the final paragraph of Romans 7, Paul is actually telling, he uses the I, the first person singular, in order not to say they, them, as though he was dumping on his fellow Jews, because this has been... The, the, the vocation of Israel has been to stand in this odd place where the promises of God and the problem of human sin are kind of uh, jangling together. And so he says, I delight in the law of God in my inward being, but I observe another law which is taking me captive. And the word for taking me captive there in Greek is eikmalotidzonta. And if you look up the eikmal dot 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 root in the Septuagint, the Greek Bible, which Paul knew like the back of his hand, it's almost always a reference to the people of God going into exile. And I think he's telling the story of Israel going into exile um, so that then the story of of what happens in Romans 8 is here's how we come out of exile and here's how God uh, does what he said in Isaiah 40 to 55 etc because part of the thing about exile is the destruction of the temple 
And in Romans 8, we have this temple language about the Spirit now dwelling in you and giving you life. And the language there is temple language. And it's, it's about, if you like, the rebuilding of the temple after the exile and so on. So these are strands of thought which most expositors of Romans, myself included, have normally ignored. But the closer you get to Paul's Jewish world, the more they come out. So that then I, I was struck when I was writing my big book on Paul 10 years ago, with the way in which Josephus, the Jewish historian, when he talks about the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy, he sees it as a complete narrative. It's not just the backstory of the people of God, it's the whole story because the covenant at the end of Deuteronomy tells the story of Israel going into exile and then God welcoming them back again and putting his law into their hearts so that they will love him, etc. Um, and Josephus sees that as a continuing promise for his own day. And it's as though Paul is agreeing with that so that the Adam and Abraham bit at the beginning of Genesis comes all the way through to the Deuteronomy bit. And Paul's saying, that's where we are now. And so the law is fulfilled, um, not in the sense of turning us all into self-help moralists. That was never the idea anyway. Um, there's a whole other strand of thought to be said there, but I'll leave that to one side. But rather, it's the glory of the fulfilling of the law through the work of God in the gospel, so that then you've got the one story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And it's the story which then welcomes us in and says, you are the ones beloved of God and, and you, you belong here. There's a statement that you made, and, and I think in various ways at different times in the book, but this idea that the law made a promise that it couldn't fulfill. And I wondered if if by that we meant that the... It, what I take you to mean is that it's not that the law failed, but the law was never trying to fulfill that promise. That the, the law was pointing toward Jesus, the Messiah. Yeah, yeah, that that's right. But it's part of the paradox of the vocation of Israel from the call of Abraham right the way on through. The, the call of Abraham, you know, if, if you read the average children's Bible, I've been thinking about these because I've just actually completed one and it's coming out, I think, next year. Um, but the average children's Bible has these heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. And they're all you know, great characters who do great things. And there's a moral at the end to show how, how great they are and we should be. But actually, if you read the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their sons, they're a complete mess. They are the people who are bearing the promises of God but they are part of the problem themselves. And the writer of Genesis is very much aware of that. So you get Abraham believing God in one chapter, and then the very next chapter, uh, he is going down to Egypt and saying that Sarah is his, um, is his sister, or he's taking um, Hagar instead, or whatever. And they all mess up. And that's the story all the way through. The book of Exodus, yes, they're redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Yes, they're given the tabernacle in the wilderness, but they make the golden calf and they grumble and they complain and they don't want to go into the land because there are giants there. And, and so it goes on and so it goes on. And so that's the sense that God gives the Torah as the great golden thing, which this is the, 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 the thing which will hold you as my covenant people. But he gives it to the people knowing that they are themselves still, in Paul's language, in Adam. Um, and the tension of the, old, the whole Old Testament is right there. And then that tension is what ends up with the crucifixion of Israel's Messiah. 
that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and he fulfills his mission by taking the evil of the world onto himself. You know, th that is that entire story rushing together in one moment. And Paul picks exactly that up and says, yeah, this is how it's all fulfilled. And now the new creation, which was what God always had in mind, the new creation proceeds with Jesus' resurrection and then the gift of the Spirit, as in John. And so it seems like, although the law is good, the law is a pleasure to follow, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are good at following it. No, no. But the paradox of being Israel, highlighted in Romans 7, which is, you know you're meant to delight in the Torah, but the more you do so, the more it points back at you and says, but don't you realize you've sinned? You, know, you, you read the story of First Kings and Second Kings, or First and Second Chronicles, and here is the great kingdom of David and Solomon, and then it all goes horribly wrong, and the kingdom gets divided, and they sin more, and they have more idolatry, and finally Babylon comes and destroys the whole thing. And the post-exilic period is deeply unsatisfactory. You know, Malachi, you have the priests are bored with what's going on, because they know that though the temple's been rebuilt, it's, it's not really as it should be. And and Malachi promises that God will come back. Zechariah promises God will come back. Various other prophets say he will come back. Nobody says he's actually done so, but the, you imagine the faithful Israelites between that time and the time of Jesus saying their prayers, going to the temple, saying the Psalms, praying and hoping. And finally, 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 as the Gospels say, there comes a young couple with a child. And old Simeon says, this is the one. So, so it's, it's inhabiting that narrative is where Paul was and where I think we have to be if we want to understand the dynamic of the whole letter, really. Yeah, the more that you talk about that, it, it makes me realize how, uh, how necessary, how steeped in the Old Testament we really need to be to understand, understand the new. There's a very popular... A uh, pastor here in America who not long ago said we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And it, seem, it seems as though that's disastrous. How could we ever, uh, how could we ever uh, understand the new? It is totally disastrous. Now, of course, uh, th there is a great transition. The, the gr there is a great transition because in the Old Testament, uh, you're waiting for um, the kingdom of God to arrive and one of the reasons you keep Sabbath every week is because it's a signpost pointing forwards to the time when God's new age would dawn. Jesus comes along and says, the time is fulfilled. So he does all sorts of things on the Sabbath which shock people because he is demonstrating the fact that the age to come has already, in a sense, arrived. But again, it's, it's an overlap. And likewise, Throughout the Old Testament, and I suspect, I don't know which pastor you're talking about, but you don't need to tell me, but I suspect one of the things there is that so much in the Old Testament at a cursory reading appears to be about military conquest and beating people up and smashing people's heads and so on. And it's one of the great transitions when God finally reveals his plan in the form of Jesus going to the cross then praying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, and so on. And then Stephen, when he's martyred, says, Lord, don't lay this into their charge. That's a total innovation. In the older Jewish martyr stories, people go to their death, martyrdom for Torah or whatever, calling down curses on their persecutors. The early Christians don't do that. And Jesus himself said, if my kingdom was the sort that grows in the world, my servants would be fighting to stop me from being handed over. But clearly, it isn't about 
fighting. So you have to map the transition and, you know, the other great transitions that the promised land is now just not just one strip of territory in the Middle East. The promised land is now the whole world going to all the world, proclaim the gospel, etc. And likewise, uh, the promises are not just for people from the Jewish uh, ethnicity. It's for everyone uh, Jew and Gentile alike, because on the cross, God has dealt with the sin and idolatry which kept Gentiles out. Therefore, the meaning of the cross must include the inclusion of Gentiles without them needing to become Jews. So those are all major points of transition, which have forced some people, particularly in the Lutheran and evangelical traditions, to say, okay, the Old Testament, that was then, this is now, we're now doing something quite different. But behind those transitions, there is this massive continuity where the whole Old Testament is telling the story of how God makes a wonderful world and wants to come and live in it with his human creatures. And even when it goes horribly wrong, the tabernacle and the temple are the signposts pointing forward to his desire to live with his human creatures. And then the story of incarnation and of the spirit belongs right there. And, you know, I grieve over the uh, ignorance in many churches of the Old Testament. I was speaking in a church in London, a big evangelical church, three or four years ago, in the last few days before Easter. So it was through Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then Easter Day. And they'd asked me to do this, and I was delighted to do it. And I spent quite a bit of time unpacking Genesis and Isaiah and the Psalms, and then showing how these events are where it was all going. And people expressed surprise. They said, we, we've never really heard it like that before. We're not quite sure what to make of it. And I thought, what, 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 excuse me, what have you been teaching in this church? Um, because that, you know, the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, was, buried, was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Well, you know that, I know that, but one has to go on emphasizing it. Well, I think that illustrates one of your three rules for understanding Paul, which is think into the first century perspective. The other two are take care to discover the main overall thrust and then pay close attention to Paul's connecting words. You make a big deal about the connecting words. And it's, I mean, it's funny that the entire chapter starts with therefore, uh, which is, you know, pointing back to what was just covered in chapter seven. I love your illustration that it is, uh, it's kind of like saying, you know, my, my car is broken down, the battery's dead, the tires are flat. Uh, therefore, I can go wherever I want because I've got this mechanic here who's going to fix all of this for me. Exactly. The, the because explains. So the therefore comes as a deliberate shock, I think. You know, so how do you mean there is therefore? Well, because, 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 because. And oh, I see. Yeah. He's very counterintuitive, but it, it it's is. a... I mean, it's a, it's an exciting writing style to draw you in. Absolutely, absolutely. Paul was not dull. He was not always popular, but he was not dull. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, what I always say one of my favorite passages is in in Peter, where he says, "You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that Paul said that are really hard to understand." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Second Peter. <laughs> How yes. much more so for us two thousand years later? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But yes, quite. And it's made worse for us because we've had long ecclesial traditions of what we assume Paul was talking about. And particularly in the Middle Ages, people assumed that the whole thing was about how can my soul get to heaven? 
and preferably avoid doing too much time in purgatory. So then the reformers come along and they say, well, guess what? In Paul, we find that the way you get to heaven is not by doing good works, but by believing. Um, and so, wow, then we have the Reformation and it's all different and Europe gets divided and, and all these different things are happening. But in fact, Paul was not addressing the medieval question. He was addressing the first century Jewish question about how is God in the right and what does God's in the rightness look like? In other words, when God is finally acting to put the whole world right and to be loyal to his covenant with Israel, how does that work and what's the payoff? And obviously Romans 8 is in the middle of that leading on then to 9 to 11 and 12 to 16. Well, and to you know, be a little pastoral about it. I think that that type of Christianity has given us uh, bad bad fruit. We're in a time where, for, for instance, I, I think about climate change comes to mind or, you know, a migrant crisis or civil war. And these are the kind of things that often Christians have said, that's not our fight. You know, we're about winning souls for the next life. And I mean, I think a uh, the world has looked on rightly said, there's, there's no use for that here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. I had an email the other day from a lady who I've never met and don't know, somewhere in Britain. She didn't tell me where. Um, and she's been reading my books, but she goes to a church where they're absolutely insistent that the only thing that matters is saving souls for heaven. And if somebody says, what about the poor people, the homeless people? Um, she gets told, oh, they know where the homeless shelter is and the council is taking care of the food bank, etc., etc." And, you know, I then read, well, I just read Psalm 72 or one of the other many passages in the Old Testament which say that the role of the true king when he comes is to look after the poor and needy. And if you think that's, oh, well, so the Old Testament is being unspiritual and we're being spiritual, well, think again, because the whole point of being spiritual is for heaven and earth to be joined together and for the life of heaven to infect and colonize the earth. That's what Jesus meant when he said, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And that, that's why the groaning of all creation in Romans 8 is such an important theme. And it's noticeable, interestingly, that ever since the Reformation, commentators on Romans have kind of skated quickly over verses 18 to maybe 26, because it just hasn't fitted what they were expecting Paul to be talking about. But actually, that's the, the heart of the whole letter, really, that the whole creation is groaning in travel, waiting for God's new world to be born. But for that to happen, God's new people have to be God's new people so that they, when they are raised from the dead, will then be the instruments of making the new creation happen. And do we have to wait for that? No, we don't, because by the Spirit, we are already enfolded into the messianic risen life now. So we are already people of glory and lament. And the lament there, the groaning, is so important. Um, you know, I could, could go on about that at length, as about much. <laughs> so I'm part of a Facebook group called the NT Right Discussion Group. Oh, really? And I, I went to them and let them know I was going to be talking with you and wondered if they had any questions. Now, some of these are about Romans as a whole, not just chapter eight. I will, uh, I didn't ask if anybody wanted to be kept anonymous, so I'll just leave names out of it. But the first one is, what does Dr. Wright think of Paul's apparent assumption that the return of Christ was imminent? Oh, it, it, that isn't an apparent assumption in Paul. That's a modern myth. 
um, which came in particularly in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, when Albert Schweitzer and people were arguing that Jesus himself expected the end of the world at any moment. And that's simply a total misreading of Jewish apocalyptic language. Um, that, that when it says the sun will be darkened and the moon won't give its light, go and read the Old Testament passages which use that language. This is about the fall of great empires and great cities, whether it's Jerusalem or Rome or whatever. Um, and when Paul says, now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed, well, yes, of course it is. But for Paul, the second coming of Jesus could, could happen at any time. He doesn't say it must happen in a particular, a particular uh, time frame. It could be at any time. So it could be tomorrow. Paul is not phased later on. Noticeable that the early fathers, whether the so-called apostolic fathers in the generation after the apostles through to the early second century, or then people like um, Irenaeus or Polycarp or Tertullian in the, at the end of the second century, middle or end of the second century, they're not bothered. They're, 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 they're reading Paul and they don't think there's the slightest problem about the fact that the world has still gone on for a few generations after Paul, after the fall of Jerusalem, because that's not an issue. It's a very modern issue which we have projected back onto Paul. It's very popular and some Pauline scholars are reviving it right now as a way of being able to say, therefore, Paul got it wrong, or therefore, that conditioned the, the reason he says this and that and the other. And it's a way then of discounting what he actually says. And uh, I, I've written quite a bit about this in various articles and books, so uh, people can look that up. So next question is, how did his view of atonement, yours, Dr. Wright, how did your view of atonement change from a propitiation of God's wrath to the kind of forbearance demonstrated on the cross in which God was passing over sins previously committed. So there's a lot There's a lot in that question and a few assumptions there. There's a huge amount in that question, and there's a lot of confusion here. The, the questioner was quoting from Romans 3, Romans 3, 24 to 26. And, and in this book, obviously, I'm focusing when it comes to the cross, particularly on Romans 8, 3 and 4, where I make it quite clear that for Paul, the death of Jesus is both penal and substitution, substitutionary. There is no condemnation because God has condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. That is definitely penal. It is definitely substitutionary. It's very interesting, though, that Paul doesn't say God condemned Jesus. He says God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Now, the event is the same. It's still the very horrible, painful, ghastly liquidation of, of a, a young Jewish prophet. You know, nothing changes in terms of the outward feelings or, or horror of it. However, the theological interpretation is vital. I don't know if you know the book I wrote about six or seven years ago, The Day the Revolution Began. There I argue quite carefully that the, the New Testament's doctrine of penal substitution goes within the New Testament's doctrine of the victory of Christ over the over the powers of darkness and the the condemnation of sin and we've we've been taught for two generations since Gustav Aulen a Swedish theologian wrote his book Christus Victor that you have to choose between Christus Victor and substitution that's completely wrong the new testament offers you the victory through substitution now in Romans 3 he's also using the language of sacrifice and also using the language of passover now passover was not a rescue from sin and sacrifice is not the killing of an animal 
uh, as a punishment instead of a human. The sacrifice, they, in fact, Jews didn't kill animals on the altar. They killed the, where, the, where and how you killed the animal was done off at the side. The point was that the blood is the cleansing agent, which then enables the glorious divine presence to live in the temple after all, which sin might have kept that glorious divine presence away. So there's all sorts of muddles to be cleared up because people have taken the sacrificial system as a sort of, oh, well, um, it, we don't get punished because the animal gets killed instead of us, etc. That is simply not how the Levitical sacrifices worked. Um, so there's a great deal of sorting out to do there. I hope that what I've said about Romans 8, 3 and 4 in this book and what I've said in The Day the Revolution Began can at least help to start to address some of those very difficult issues. There's been a lot of pushback against penal substitution. It's been called divine child abuse. And I, th I think that part of that lies in the idea, I, I guess for me, I've understood it as, uh, you know, the scripture says uh, God put, oh, I'm going to butcher this, but that, that God destroyed sin uh, on with Jesus on the cross. Um, and I think that for me, I guess the pivotal question is, who is demanding the sacrifice? Was it God or was it the sin itself that is demanding the sacrifice well, or something else? And, and again, beware of using the language of sacrifice just snuck in there because sacrifice is really about purity and about the purification in order. You see, as long as we think in terms of this is all about I'm a sinner, how do I get to heaven? Then it's not going to work the way the Bible does it. If you think about how is God going to come and dwell with his people, granted that they're sinful, then what is needed is for the stain of sin and the smell of death to be washed away from the temple or the tabernacle. And the temple or tabernacle now, Romans 8, is believers. The spirit dwells within us because the sacrifice has been offered, which cleanses us to enable God to come and dwell with us. But uh, I mean, there are different varieties of penal substitution. This is something which needs to be said loud and clear. If somebody simply says, oh, I believe in penal substitution and atonement, I say, well, which version are you choosing? Because as I say in the earlier book, The Day the Revolution Began, there are some preachers who leave, they may not intend to do this, but they leave their hearers, particularly impressionable young people, with the view that God so hated the world that he killed Jesus. In other words, God was furious with, with the world, including you and me. He wanted to punish somebody. Um, he swung his fist and it happened to connect with his own innocent son. So that makes it all right, doesn't it? Now, of course, no preacher would own up to preaching that in a sermon, but you can do the survey. That is what a lot, particularly of young people, think that they have heard the gospel is, and they don't like the look of that God because they kind of know, some of them, sadly, what it, what, what's going on when a person in authority, having done something brutal to them, says, oh, this is all because I love you or something like that. And this is, not, this is where the, the idea of child abuse comes in. And I, I get that. I understand that. Um, but the, the good news is there is a biblical doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. It's right there in Romans 8, 3 and 4. But it's in the context of what Paul is actually saying, as opposed to what we have imagined him to be saying. I was just going to ask, uh, you're by my calculation, I, you're you're in your seventies, and 
I was just wondering, how are you? How are how is your health? Um, I'm, I'm not, of course, I don't want you to share anything that you feel private, but it's it's very public knowledge. I mean, uh, this time last year, I got long COVID, and I thought I'd shaken it off, and then for about five months, it kept coming back. And I was able to go and do some things, and then I had to crash again. And I was out of action over Christmas, New Year, and quite a bit of the early months of this year. And even though I then, by the end of February, I was doing okay, it's one of the legacies of long COVID that I've got rheumatoid arthritis, which was diagnosed. And uh, and they said, actually, it's now a thing, that this is one of the things that long COVID can do to you. And so my thumbs are poor, my knees are uh, vile. I'm actually going to get a new knee, God willing, in about two months' time. So that's a big thing. But for some reason, and this too may be a side effect of some of that and the medications and so on, the last month or two I've been having endless stomach problems, which is not like me at all. Normally I have a cast-down stomach and I can eat anything at all. But um, I've been on, been on a diet because of the rheumatoid stuff, so I've lost a lot of weight. Um, so all of that's been going on. And I say, well, you know, I live in a country which has a national health service. I've been paying my taxes for 50 plus years. And finally, I get to call on the doctor quite regularly and get some benefit back from all the in input that I've been doing. So I'm not I'm not doing badly. But um, yeah, I'm 74, nearly 75. People my age start to fall apart. And if that's happening, then that's happening. That's how it is. Well, I hope that you completely recover from that and... Thank you very much. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to be reading new N.T. Wright books for for several more years to come. (laughs) Well, there's one or two on the way after that one. Um, There's one in the new year, which you may like the look of, called Jesus and the Powers by Mike Bird and myself, uh, also from Zondervan in America. And that's designed to land in both Britain and America when both countries are having an election next year. Um, and it's designed to speak into that question. So, uh, God willing. It will be much needed then. It will be much needed. <laughs> so, that sounds great. And apparently you've got a children's Bible coming out. That's exciting. Yeah, the children's Bible, which is is a strange thing. And I'm not sure what I think about it, but it is what it is. <laughs> well, Dr. Wright, thank you so much. You've always been so generous. Thank you. And uh, we appreciate it and appreciate the new book. Thanks for being here. It's very good to talk to you again. I hope it won't be too long before we see you again. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Remember, you can find all the show notes for this show and all shows at shaneblackshear.com. Oh, and hey, have you ever thought about starting your very own podcast? I bet you have. And I think you should do it. In fact, I've created a course just for you to teach you everything that I've learned over the last couple of years producing Seminary Dropout. So if you're interested in podcasting and want to learn how, Go check out my course. You can go there by typing in podcastingforeveryone.org. And you can get a special discount by typing in the discount code Seminary Dropout, all one word. That'll give you 25% off. So go check it out. If you have any questions, let me know. Okay. Thanks to those that left ratings and reviews on iTunes this week. Remember, that keeps the show front and center. Also, remember, you can find me on Twitter at at beard on a bike that's at beard on a bike also i'm on facebook facebook.com slash shane blackshear one two three and remember that seminary dropout is listener supported 
You can visit supportseminarydropout.com and press become a patron. Remember, this music you're listening to right now is by D.L. Rossi. You can find him online on iTunes and at dlrossi.com. All right. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of Seminary Dropout. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Love you. Take care. Yeah, my best. I owe.